Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. An attempted mass assassination of Republican members of Congress today. That's what happened. Um, The FBI and police have already identified the assailant, James uh, Hodgkinson. He is of Illinois. He's 66 years old. And from what we can see so far, uh, he clearly was a left-wing lunatic. Uh, He was an ardent Bernie Sanders supporter. He had volunteered for the Sanders campaign. He staked out this field and tried to turn it into a killing field, certainly if there weren't two members of the Capitol Police as part of Representative Scalise's security detail present at this baseball field in Alexandria, we would be counting the dead today instead of tending to the wounded, all of whom, thankfully, uh, gratefully, are going to be making a, um, or blessedly, going to be making a full recovery. Um, So that's the good news. Uh, it, it could have been, it very was very close to being much worse than it was. Um, here is Senator Flake talking about the initial barrage of shots. A number of us uh, ran to the dugout uh, knowing that we could uh, go down and there's a pretty good protection there if he stayed where he was. Uh, but uh, the firing was going on and then all of a sudden there was firing from our side. Now, we didn't know initially if this was another gunman, um, and I, I started yelling in the dugout. I yelled out, is, it, is this friendly? Is this friendly? Are you friendly? Uh, to the person who was firing behind our dugout. And uh, gratefully, it was a member of the Capitol Police, and he, he showed himself. He poked out from around the dugout. He was firing from using our dugout as a refuge as well. And uh, I felt much better at that point knowing that he was there uh, but this went on for another 10 minutes. It just, somebody estimated over 50 rounds fired. I think that's a, it's an understatement. I think there were much more than that. It just kept going and going. And the opening moments of this assault, this planned uh, mass assassination attempt, uh, this is what, this is audio that was taken at the opening of the assault. It was a gun battle. I mean, members of Capitol Police up against somebody who, from what I've read, I keep, there keep being, there are all these reports it's an M4, I would assume almost certainly an AR-15, much easier to get, uh, but somebody with a semi-automatic rifle uh, against two officers with uh, with pistols. Um, they took him down. The shooter is dead. 
Uh, he was dead when he got to, or dead at the hospital. Um, and Senator Rand Paul said it well. This this could have been. He was on the scene, and he's a, a doctor. There are a few members of uh, Congress who are there who have medical training, who had to tend immediately to the wounded, use their belts as tourniquets. Uh, Senator Rand Paul said it well. This very this could have been a massacre, as I said, a mass assassination. I probably heard 50, 60 shots. And then finally we heard a response, you know, from the Capitol Hill police. And we're actually very lucky they were there. Like, the only reason they were there is because we had a member of leadership on our team. Mm. If Scalise wouldn't have been on the team, unfortunately he was hit, and I, I hope he does well. But also by him being there, he probably saved everybody else's mm. life because if you don't have a leadership person there, there would have been no security there. Had they not been there, it would have been a massacre. He's right. It almost certainly would have been a, a massacre with many, many killed at that field. It's it's terrifying to think about it. This uh, shooter, uh, this shooter, James Hodgkinson, stayed for a week in the area. Reports have come out now. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about his his background and ideology as we, as we know it. And, and of, of course, all the political debates that surround this uh Immediately after a tragedy now, it's instantaneous politicization. And some of the debate and commentary is worthwhile. Some of it is disgusting and disgraceful, but we'll work through that together. Um, th- we were lucky today, though. Uh, clearly, he didn't realize, the shooter didn't think that, there, that members of Congress uh, who would be gathering at this field uh, would have armed security with them. He set this up. I mean, when you think about it, it's it's a perfect ambush spot. I've seen photos of the actual baseball diamond, and he had set himself up so that everybody out there in the field, they had nowhere to go. Um, right before, by the way, the shooter said, are those Republicans or Democrats out there practicing? Now, I know the FBI just gave a, a press conference, and they said they're trying to figure out uh, quote, motive and why Hodgkinson was at the ballpark when he opened fire at baseball, at the baseball practice. Okay, we know the motive. It's different when law enforcement says that they're waiting to, they're waiting to have a clarity on motive because of legal ramifications, but we all know the motive. We don't have to sit around and pretend to be dumb for no reason. This was a, a political, uh, this was terrorism. This was a, a political hit. Now, it wasn't part of some larger entity. It isn't uh, emblematic or symbolic of one political party or the entirety of the American left or anything like that at all. So I, I also need to draw some uh, boundaries here as to where we go with the conversation, because I, I know that just just because the other side, just because Democrats seize on every tragedy to make the most uh, opportunistic political points doesn't mean that we should do the same thing. Yeah, this guy was a Bernie Sanders superfan. Yes, he was a progressive. Yes, he belonged to a Facebook group called The Road to Hell is Paved with Republicans and Terminate the Republican Party and Donald Trump is not my president. So, I mean, the social media presence of this guy tells you everything you need to know about his politics. He clearly targeted Republicans for assassination. This was political in nature. Okay, so we know all of that. What are the lessons that we take from it, though? And this is where you start to see uh, the discussion devolve into 
a political and uh, special interest battle of sorts, you will hear people like the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, who right right after this incident comes out to say the following. There are too many guns on the street. We lose 93 million Americans a day to gun violence. I mean, I've long talked about this. Background checks, shutting down gun show loopholes. Yeah, that's not for today's discussion, but it's not just about politicians. Governor, we worry about this every day for all of our citizens. A rhetorical tactic there, I guess, called preterizio. When one says the thing that one says, one will not say. You know, I could talk about how Republicans create an environment of hostility and fear today, but I won't do that, says Governor McAuliffe. Or I could talk about how this is about gun control, but I won't do that. You know, that, that's what he's that's what he's saying there, because uh, he is talking about gun control today, even though he's saying it's a conversation for another time. Obviously, 93 million people a day, he misspoke, but I'm, I guess he was trying to say 93 people a day. I don't know. McAuliffe is a uh, is an, an odious character from everything that I know of him. Uh, so no surprises there. And uh, the, the this isn't going to turn into, I don't think, a, a gun control debate as much as the Democrats would rather have that discussion. Um, I most likely think this will just continue to be about whether the left is now embracing violence. Right. That's where we all are going with this. That's what the discussion really comes down to. Um, is this. Uh, is this now a period of time where there's reckless rhetoric that inspires people on the left to act out in violence? I am somebody who always points first at the perpetrator, and uh, it, it would be unfair, it would be unfair in my opinion, to in any way suggest that you know, Bernie Sanders or what he stands for drove this lunatic to do what he did. This is not Bernie Sanders' fault. It's not Bernie Sanders' supporters' fault. Um, That said, Bernie Sanders, and this is where you get into the double standard and the hypocrisy, which I don't think we can just leave unchecked, because there was another horrific incident, and and in that case, of course, people lost their lives, which makes it even more 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 terrifying, um, when Gabrielle Giffords was shot. And uh, along with a number of other people who were nearby who were killed and Democrats wasted no time at all in the hyper politicization of that incident, um, claiming that it was the fault of any number of Republicans saying that Sarah Palin, because she had a map with gun sites on it, targeting different districts in the country. uh, She was to blame. They straight up blame people after violence, which, by the way, uh, uh, Jared Loeffner was not. In, in any well, first of all, he was truly a lunatic, right? I mean, he's somebody who was d- detached and deranged from reality. He wasn't even, I believe, considered fit to stand trial initially, and then he got a life sentence without parole. Uh, and his political philosophy was all over the place, if you could even call it a philosophy. Uh, but they blamed it on the right. Bernie Sanders, unfortunately, was part of that pylon. So there is a disingenuousness with calls for civility and for rationality from the Democrats right now. Because under similar circumstances, uh, when they have the opportunity, they blame the right. They say this is uh, all, you know, that they they would say that this is the cause um, or that the entire political party, rather, that is in opposition to them is the cause of the incident, is the cause of the violence. So I don't I don't think that it's fair or right for us to do that. But it is fair to point out that is what they do. 
Um, there's also a difference now, though. Uh, I don't blame Democrats for this. I don't think that's fair. Uh, I don't blame Bernie Sanders for this. I don't think that's fair. I do believe that within the Democratic Party, there are elements now. There are people who are of the left who have blurred the lines between the hyperbole that we have all become used to and stretches back, and you'll read think pieces if you want on the Internet the next day or two about how mean people were to each other, what they were saying about each other you know, in the early 1800s in this country and how the political parties were fighting then and the things that were said and claims of sedition and claims of treason and uh, allegations. Um, that's all true. But keep in mind, just because it was that way then, it doesn't mean that it would have to be that way now. And every situation, uh, every historical circumstance is not an, not an exact parallel. There are elements within the Democrat Party right now or, or who are of the left. Some of them probably consider themselves honestly to be outside of the Democratic Party in some capacity. Uh, but they are of the left, whether it's Antifa or uh, Black Lives Matter uh, or other elements of Black Lives Matter, I think is much more fair to say, um, that do espouse rhetoric that a, a person could reasonably be expected to react to in an illegal and even violent fashion. Meaning that if you believe, for example, uh, the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter, that cops are actually hunting and killing um, young black men for no reason, if somebody truly believed that and didn't view that as hyperbolic language, they would respond in a way that would include illegal acts. And that has happened, as we have seen. So there is incitement. Incitement is a possible thing to take into account when we're talking about political rhetoric. And I think the left has been involved in more incitement recently than they certainly want to admit today. Antifa, another instance, they have open discussions about whether it's okay to punch a, quote, fascist. Meanwhile, they're actually the fascists, but they have open discussions about this, and they do punch people because they disagree with them, and they attack them, and they beat them with sticks, and they burn things down, and they break windows. And this is people numbering in the hundreds, if not the thousands, that are doing this. And Democrats maybe disavow it, mostly ignore it. There is something different now. When they say that speech equals violence on college campuses, and that is a mainstream political belief, that is different. And that is incendiary. Because if you truly believe that, if you don't think that it is hyperbole, and that's an open question, do they believe it or not? Are they just saying it? They act on it. If people believe some of the claims that the left is making these days, there is at least going to be a few cases of individuals who act out in the most horrific ways, and we can't ban necessarily the rhetoric. I'm not saying there should be censorship by the government, but we should at least understand that rhetoric can incite violence. It, it is possible for that to be the case. And the left is dancing very close to the edge these days, talking about how Trump is a traitor and, there's, and he's treasonous and he's going to prison and uh, he's going to put people in camps and he's a fascist. And I mean, this is overheated rhetoric to be sure. But some of the other stuff we see from Antifa, Black Lives Matter and uh, other groups within the left really does come right up to, if not just outright cross the line into incitement. It goes beyond just political discourse. All right. I want to know what you think about this today. Who do you think is responsible? What what would be your judgment about what happened today? 
I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this, my friends. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Many lives would have been lost if not for the heroic actions of the two Capitol Police officers who took down the gunman despite sustaining gunshot wounds during a very, very brutal assault. Absolutely true. Those Capitol Police officers, they, they, they saved lives today. And I know the for a lot of people, the reaction is to think, well, they're police officers. That's what they're trained to do. And yes, that is true. But doesn't doesn't make the act any less uh, any less heroic. I mean, someone starts opening up with a with a semi-automatic rifle in an ambush situation. Some people would freeze. Uh, these two uh, these two individuals, these two members of Capitol Police, ran towards the guns and took out took out the shooter. And God bless him for it. Uh, let's take Paul in Mississippi on WBUV. What's up, Paul? Hey, Buck. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, you asked the question of who's to blame. I'm going to go with liberalism in general, uh, I guess it would start back with the entire idea that nobody loses. We need to all be winners. Well, liberals forgot how to lose, and therefore they don't take it very well when they do. Um, And then if you look at all these individual shooters, uh, James Holmes, this guy, um, the Virginia Tech shooter, all of them came from the liberal background, Adam Lanza. They all had a liberal background. If we go back to Columbine, they had liberal background. Uh, but yet they're the ones that don't want guns around, but they're the ones shooting innocent people. It's kind of an interesting thought. You mentioned Jared Lautner, and his was all over the place, but he's just totally insane. Uh, Paul, would you agree with me, though, that, that, that ultimately the responsibility in any of these incidents does lie with the shooter? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you know, I, mean, I, I worry because, you know, with liberals, with liberals, if you give them enough room and you say, oh, it's a, all of a sudden it turns into root causes. Right. And then people no longer then p- terrorists, mass murderers, they no longer even have agency over their acts. It's the society that spawned them. You know, they were picked last for dodgeball. Their parents were mean to them or something. You know, this was that we had to go through this during the period of uh, rising crime in the 70s and 80s. This became a common refrain, right, that it was root causes that that were uh, resulting in violent crime. No, no, no. People that choose to do violence, are the, they, they are the top of the heap of responsibility. But there's an environment around it as well that we can certainly discuss. Paul, thank you for calling in. Oh, from. Absolutely. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Absolutely. I was just agreeing with you. Oh, all right. Um, well, I, that yes, will... Always the individual's choice. Always the individual's choice. That's right. We never allow that to be negated or pushed aside here. The responsibility does lie first and foremost with that shooter. And uh, a, a huge preponderance of the responsibility is with the shooter. And we can talk about the environment. We can talk about the rhetoric. But remember, there's only one, only one person was pulling that trigger today to try to kill innocent people. And thankfully, he is done. Um, we uh, we can go into a, we're going to go into a break here. We've got more spots open, a lot of calls coming in. I want to take them. We've also got live updates or a live update from the scene in Alexandria. Uh, so, Team Buck, much more coverage of this shooting today. We'll get into it in just a few. Stay with me.
The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Lines are lit up all over the place. I want to take your calls, Team Buck. Um, your voice is critical to this discussion in the Freedom Hunt today. Joe in San Francisco, welcome. Shields high, Buck. Shields high. So uh, first thing, uh, I read on Mark Stein's website that the person asking about whether or not the, they were Republicans or Democrats on the field, according to Mark Stein anyway, was not the gunman. <clears throat> so maybe a little update there. Who knows? Um and uh, of course, the uh, psychotic nutbag who uh, was shooting people is responsible. Um, however, now we turn to uh, talk of reconciliation, unity, and other things that we're hearing from our uh, political opponents. And it makes me think back to Black Lives Matter marching through the streets of New York City and saying, what do we want, dead cops? When do we want them? Now, well, they got dead cops. It reminds me of Democrat politician after Democrat politician saying, this Republican bill is going to kill thousands. This, that Republican bill is going to kill thousands. The other Republican bill is going to kill thousands of children. And on and on and on. It reminds me of the Democrats trying to link Omar Mateen, the murderer from the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, to the NRA. And American gun culture, even though, you know, he was a Hillary Clinton supporter and, uh, you know, a jihadi all, all wrapped into one delightful package. So, you know, I'm, I'm struggling really hard to, to find the common ground where we, on which I can unify with people who are constantly accusing me of, you know, for one thing, being responsible for the violence that happens on college campuses because Trump motivates that violence, the violence that happens at when people show up at Trump rallies to throw eggs and spit. And because, you know, Trump, it's all because Trump, everything's because Trump, you know, I would, like you, I was not a Donald Trump supporter, but the longer his presidency lasts, the more I support him. And I'm much more firm in my, my resolve and much more convinced that I did the right thing by, by voting for him. Yeah, Trump, Trump was not my guy at the beginning of the primary, but I, I, as you know, um, Joe, I did vote for him and supported him then. And, and the longer his presidency goes on, the, the deeper in the Trump bunker I find myself. Yeah, well, it's, and it's not surprising either. Um, you know, Donald Trump has a lot of flaws. I think, you know, both... You, I've heard you admit that many times, and I've, I've admitted that myself. But the one, the one uh, very powerful strength he has is he really is able to display the left in all its frothing, screaming, hair-on-fire fury. And, you know, no, it's not Bernie Sanders' fault that this guy did this. Um, but... It, it, it might come to the point where, where we do say, yeah, I think that is your fault. You know, you should have been. Right, well, well, I, I think that's important. I think you're touching on what I was trying to get to before, Joe, which is that at some point rhetoric is dangerous. Right? We, we shouldn't pretend that there's no such thing as dangerous rhetoric. Uh, you know, th there is incitement, right? If you're in front of a crowd of people and you say, let's all go get the, you know, fill in the blank, whoever it is that you're targeting. And then that mob goes and and, uh, you know, beats that person to death. I mean, 
That's not, hey, I was just speaking metaphorically, right? I mean, you know, th- there is a there is a level at which it is too much. And I think that there are there are elements within the left. I don't mean individuals. I mean, there are strains of leftist political ideology that are increasingly mainstreamed and normalized in the Democratic Party that are in favor of violence as part of the, quote, resistance. Look, the resistance, it's like the resistance, you know, la resistance uh, in France against Nazi Germany, right? I mean, the resistance is it has a, a sort of military connotation to it. And that's now becoming a term that's normalized across the board uh, for Democrats who oppose Trump. So, uh, Joe, thank you for calling in. Um, you know, it's we should be very clear that there's that that rhetoric does have power rhetoric matters that's not to say that the shooter is not responsible the terrorist is not responsible um but it is to say that you know for example let, let's take the let's take a jihadist um a, a jihadist situation and, and compare them when we look at somebody who goes and blows himself up with a suicide vest on if they were in a radical mosque that was preaching hate and uh, violence for years before them, we would say, well, that that was a contributing factor. It doesn't make the suicide bomber any less horrific, evil, vile or guilty, but it just is a, a, a part in the process of making that person the terrorist that he became. Um, so I, I think that today you're hearing a lot of calls, calls for civility, calm down our political passions and all that from the left. But uh, that's circumstantial because when when it's the other way around, as you know, it's, oh, my gosh, the concern. You know, when, when someone goes in, I mean, we're still how many times have you heard about, you know, an, an abortion clinic bombing from decades ago as though it's symbolic of everything in the right about pro-life? I mean, the left is wildly disingenuous with this stuff and dishonest in how it portrays it. But it doesn't mean we, we should not approach this the same way that they do. I know it, it's tough to win debates against an opponent who has no honor to defend. And oftentimes when you're dealing with leftists, that's the situation in which you find yourselves. They'll change, they'll change what they said yesterday. They'll lie through their teeth. They have no principles to defend, which gives them a lot of latitude, right? Just whatever works today. Whatever sounds good today, um, that is a, a mantra on the left. So uh, I'm I'm well aware of it. But uh, let's take some what we got. I mean, a lot of people want to talk about this. Obviously, I can understand why. Uh, JJ in Virginia on WPTI. Hey, Buck. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thank um, you. I think you were dancing around it a little bit. Maybe you didn't want to say it or what. But when you say left, you've got to consider the biggest branch of the left party, which is the media. Um, that's how people get their messaging. That's how they get the uh, Democratic Party gets their spin. So when they start to hear that, you know, the the Russian thing isn't going as they planned, they're not going to be able to impeach Trump. Based on that, things are starting to get unraveled for the left. You know, things are falling apart. You know, they're starting to lose it a little bit. You know, the, the messaging that they were um, expecting to work is not working. And uh, I think we need to consider that a little bit. Uh, one thing, you know, I don't, I've never watched Stephen Colbert until I think two nights ago. And I just was watching the NBA finals and watched the local news. And then he was on, and I couldn't, 
I couldn't get over the first 20 minutes were anything but Trump jokes. The whole monologue was Trump jokes. And then the first guest. But, J.J., I mean, there's, we, we get it. There's a difference between, though, Trump jokes and saying that Trump is a Trump is a traitor and, you know, he, he's going to be destroying the country and pe- rounding people up and putting them in, in internment camps, right? I mean, so there, there are but, degrees. There are, there are variations here. Right. But it's a, it's a constant. I couldn't get over the constant bashing of, you know, not even a joke about anything else that was going on in the world or even a mention. And, and to tell you the truth, they weren't even jokes. They were. Yeah, you it's know, just attacks. It's just attacks. It's undermining. And, yeah. I, and I agree. Look, and you're, you're right to point to the media's role in this, but I, we have to be. Look, this is a nuanced discussion. You have to be honest and careful about. And I'm not saying you're not. I just mean in general, you have to be honest and careful no, about no, where you're going no, with all I, this. Not, yeah, I mean, I'm not blaming the media. You know, it's the shooter's fault. But you, when you look, when you say, you know, the left's message and everything, the, the left's messaging is from the media. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the media is left, so the, so, so it all does tie in together. I, I would agree with that. When I'm talking about yeah, leftist ideology, yeah. the media is a mouthpiece for it. we got to roll, J.J., but thank you very much for uh, for calling in. I appreciate it. Uh, we're now joined by a reporter who's been covering this all day at the scene. Paul Wagner is a reporter at Fox 5 in D.C. He's been on the ground all day. Paul, thank you for calling in. Uh, please give us the latest. Well, uh, the latest is uh, we're uh, learning a lot more about this uh, gunman. Uh, He's from Belleville, uh, Illinois. He came here to Alexandria, Virginia in March. And according to people that got to know him in the FBI, he uh, was living out of his car and he was living out of a gym bag at the YMCA, which is right across the street from the ball field. Uh, We know that he worked as a volunteer on the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. He was a home inspector. He was looking for work here. Uh, He would frequent uh, restaurants along uh, Mount Vernon uh, Avenue here, and the bartender I spoke to today who got to know him a little bit said he put off kind of a weird vibe. But I also spoke with the former mayor of Alexandria here. His name is Bill Ewell, and uh, Bill Ewell got to know him quite well because he would go and work out at the YMCA. They'd have coffee together in the uh, front entrance there. Uh, He said that this uh, man would sit there on his laptop. He never went into any kind of rants against Republicans or Trump. Uh, didn't talk about politics. He was looking for work. He was looking for places to to go. And uh, the fact that this happened was a a complete shock to the mayor who said he he got to know him uh, uh, here over the last couple of weeks. Now, uh, the updated information we have is that earlier today, there was a lot of confusion over uh, some of the uh, the wounded. And uh, just to give you a little update on that is that uh, we had originally been told that two Capitol Police officers had been shot. It turns out that Uh, Just one was shot uh, in the ankle, the female officer. The male officer sustained uh, an injury uh, during the incident but was not actually shot. Uh, We uh, know that a congressional aide was shot. Uh, We know uh, uh, the congressman was shot, of course. We know that a a lobbyist uh, was shot and the gunman was shot. The gunman uh, passed away at George Washington University Hospital uh, where he was taken earlier today. So this is still a crime scene here uh, where I'm standing. Uh, The uh, ATF is here. They're going over the crime scene looking for evidence. Um, And uh, that's the basic information uh, that I have at the moment. The FBI just gave that press conference. Uh, They they said that they're still waiting to assert uh, publicly what the motive is, because the motive to a lot of folks already seems pretty clear. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, a lot of police departments, the FBI, they don't like to get into motive. So they like to know exactly what happened, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come up with the motive. Now that the man is dead, we may not know the motive. 
what we know, you know, a little bit about him, what we've been able to find out about him, uh, is that, you know, like I said, he worked for Bernie, Bernie Sanders, uh, and he, on his Facebook page, uh, went on rants against uh, Trump. So uh, that's the basic information that we have at this point. Um, but as far as the FBI is concerned, you know, they're very circumspect, and uh, I'm not so sure we're going to get a lot out of them as far as motive is concerned. Do we uh, have any clarity on this point about whether or not the shooter asked uh, if they were Republicans on the field? I, I see here, rep- according to NBC News, this is from earlier today, Representative DeSantis and uh, Representative Duncan um, were at the practice, and they were asked if the players in the field were Republicans or Democrats. Quote, we both agreed that the individual came up to us and asked if it was uh, Republicans or Democrats is the same individual police have identified, right? So that's, it, the, the, he did, the shooter did ask if they were Republicans or Democrats from what I'm seeing here. Have you heard that too? Uh, yes, that's accurate. I, I believe you're quoting uh, the congressman accurately, uh, that he wanted to know uh, the answer to that question. Now, uh, the YMCA where he's staying is right across from the ball field. Uh, now, uh, if he had a rifle, he he wasn't showing it to anybody uh, at the YMCA, that's for sure. And uh, uh, he didn't talk about guns. Uh, any of the people that I've talked to say he never mentioned anything about guns. Uh, so I read M4 earlier today. Did they figure out if it was actually an, an AR-15 or an AR variant instead of an actual M4? I've heard M4 as well, but uh, I, I don't have that uh, uh, confirmed. Just wondering if you had that. Okay, because people, people are wondering, because that would obviously change some of the uh, discussion about uh, what gun laws may have been violated here by this individual. But um, Paul Wagner, everybody, he's a reporter at Fox 5 in D.C. He's been down there all day covering this. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate you uh, filling us in. You're welcome. Uh, team, we're going to hit a quick break here. We've got a lot more. Uh, stay with me. Earlier today, Representative Mo Brooks, we've had on the show uh, before, um, uh, he was at the scene. He was tending to the wounded, and then he was asked a question after the uh, the circumstances had, uh, after the you know attack had ended and circumstances allowed him to actually speak to reporters. He was asked the following, Congressman, does this change your views on the gun situation in America? Here's what Mo Brooks said. Not with respect to the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment right to bear arms is to ensure that we always have a republic. And as with any constitutional provision in the Bill of Rights, there are adverse aspects to each of those rights that we enjoy as people. And what we just saw here is one of the bad side effects of someone not exercising those rights properly. But we're not going to get rid of freedom of speech because some people say some really ugly things that hurt other people's feelings. We're not going to get rid of Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights because it allows some criminals to go free who should be behind bars. These rights are there to protect Americans. And while each of them has a negative aspect to them, they are fundamental to our being the greatest nation in the history of the world. So, no, I'm not changing my position on any of the rights we enjoy as Americans. Um, Thought that was worth sharing with you all. Patty in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, Patty. Hey, Buck. Hey, I'd like to draw a comparison. Um, At the height of the discussion about fake news, the left loved to to use as an example that poor guy that went to the pizza place because of the Pizzagate conspiracy, thinking he was going to go save children that were down in the basement. Look at what we've got going on now. This is because of actual news 
where CNN, NBC, on, from from January on, has incessantly been insinuating that the president of the United States is a traitor, and that all the people surrounding him, including people that have been Republicans in the government for decades, have all of a sudden decided to go against the United States and and team up with the Russians, with clim- with the climate accord that the GOP and Trump is killing, literally going to kill people. How is that any different that this guy was not driven by the things he was hearing and seeing in the news to thinking that he was saving people by going and and doing this deed that he did? The environment is is part of the discussion. The the rhetoric around – uh, the rhetoric around the country right now from the left is, look, I've been talking about it this whole hour. I, I still put the, uh, the the burden of responsibility on the shooter. But like I said, if someone really believes, it's one thing to read some crazy conspiracy on a, you know, on a random chat room on the Internet and act on it. But the constant drumbeat from the media of Trump is a is a traitor. Uh, a, a crime listed, one of three crimes listed, you know, treason, one of three crimes listed in the Constitution. Trump is a traitor and is a danger to the republic and to the people living in it this is that is the kind of rhetoric that is in you know that is incendiary and could be incitement and look you know people say oh what about when obama was president yeah people were saying that obamacare was unconstitutional and they hated it and it was bad and, you know but i don't remember anybody ever saying that obama was guilty of tre- of treason at least not on the nightly news uh, casts you know what i mean this is there's a whole different level we're talking about with Trump here. So in, in a sense, exactly. if this isn't unprecedented, it certainly is uh, the first time in decades we've had this. Maybe you could say the 60s was a similar period in terms of the rhetoric. Patty, Mississippi, thank you for calling in. Um, but look, the, the, this is a complicated issue. Uh, how much responsibility do we put on the media narrative and the left and the ideologies that are growing within it versus the shooter? I mean... Uh, it's mostly the shooter's fault. That much I'm clear on, but there's also another aspect to this discussion. Um, the words that are used by the left these days to describe the president and his supporters uh, are often dehumanizing and intended to incite alarm and perhaps even action. We've got more. Stay with me. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Team, to help us make sense of uh, all the events going on today, we've got our friend David French joining us as a guest. He's a senior writer for National Review, attorney and veteran of Operation Rocky Freedom, also co-author of the number one New York Times bestselling Rise of ISIS. Great to have you back, David. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, before I, I move on to some uh, Russia collusion talk with you, uh, I, your piece up on National Review, When Speech Inspires Violence, Protect Liberty While Restoring Virtue. What, uh, what's the gist? Tell everybody what you mean. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you always hear about after something like this happens is, well, did, did rhetoric cause this? Did um, red, you know, are, who's to blame besides the shooter? And I wanted I wanted to step back a little bit and take a bigger view on this because 
you know, when you have a breakdown like this, well, number one, you don't want to suppress liberty. You, you continue to protect free speech. But at the same time, you acknowledge a problem. And we have a problem in this country. I mean, we're, I'm not saying we're at the point where we were in the late 60s, early 70s, but I think it's the worst uh, point in this, our nation's history since that time. And in that sense, I think we're losing this concept of what our founders would call ordered liberty, um, that you exercise your freedoms, but you do, you do so against a background of a basic level of respect and decency and virtue. And what we're losing is that, that aspect of ordered liberty. And it's, you know, we have a, a temperature, uh, a, a, a rhetorical temperature problem in this country that's related to people's very real passions and their very real hatred for other people. And it's not surprising to see this leak into violence. It's not surprising at all. You'd have to have turned off all of your knowledge of human history to be at all surprised that when temperatures and feelings run this hot, that it doesn't sometimes turn into something worse. I always appreciate it, David, when people in good faith and with some knowledge try to apply a historical context to a situation like this. And I'm seeing some of the, oh, but look at the way things were in the, you know, at, at the turn of the 19th century in this country and the things politicians were saying about each other then. Well, I think you can argue that there's been an ebb and flow to the political temperature in this country. Obviously, at one point, we're in the midst of a civil war. Right. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean so. So we shouldn't ignore that right now it is worse than it was, say, in 2012 when it was Romney and Obama. It is worse than it was in 2008. I mean, you know, this is different. Yeah, it's kind of weird to say, well, it's not as bad as it was in 1861, so it's not a problem. Or it's not as bad as it was in 1968, so it's not a problem. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're going in a bad direction right now. The direction we're headed is bad, and we have to highlight that, and we have to grapple with it. Because if you just sort of shove it under the rug and then you take each individual incident and then try to decide how can I best use it as a club to beat my political opponent, then that direction is going to continue to get worse. And that's what we've got to face. We have a population of which an increasing number of people feel very very angry and alienated, particularly against the other side. And when when we stoke that and when you exploit that, you magnify it. And I think that's just a reality. Do you think that social media and just the, the Internet's reach also has a has a magnifying effect in that it is easier for those who are susceptible to act on political hyperbole to not just access it, but put themselves in a constant loop I mean, to essentially uh, self-radicalize as a leftist. Totally. I mean, totally. I mean, when you're talking about a situation where a person can surround themselves essentially completely with people of like mind, I mean, there's an actual term for this. It's called the law of group polarization. And what this means is that when people of like mind gather, they tend to gravitate more to the extreme and what social media does is it breaks down that physical barrier that used to keep people from gathering, uh, you know, that, that it was hard to get large numbers of people of like mind and to get that mob mentality going. It makes that easy through, you know, through our ability to match up with our, each other on social media. You can gather with people of like mind and you can really stoke that anger and fury. I mean, there's just no question about that. And, of course, the immediate politicization afterwards by uh, Governor McAuliffe of Virginia saying this is <laughs> about guns. I mean— 
This this is never going to change, is it? I mean, we're, we're always whenever a gun is used in a crime anywhere in this country, there are going to be Democrats who just focus on that and they pretend that there aren't hundreds of millions of guns in circulation, that concealed carry weapon permit holders commit fewer crimes, I believe, per capita than even police. No police. offense to police, yes. but right. And police are very, very law abiding. I mean, that's you're right. It's no offense to police. It's that concealed carry holders are extraordinarily law abiding. I actually in my piece use them as an example of what ordered liberty looks like. It's they're exercising their freedom by being concealed carrier holders, but they're doing so with the utmost responsibility. And in fact, the very exercise of their liberty contributes to that responsibility. And so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, at this point, I, I used to kind of feel like, oh, I got to I got to say something about the politicization of tragedy. But it's so inevitable now. It's almost like complaining about the weather. It's a complaining about this color of the sky. It's just part of the atmosphere of our times. We're speaking to David French, who's a senior writer at National Review. He has an excellent piece up on nationalreview.com right now. Uh, David, I want to switch gears for a moment here to uh, the latest on the special counsel and the Russia collusion investigations, the narrative, all of that. Uh, You have, I see here, the uh, Washington Post reporting that the president is under invest or, or that the special counsel is looking at obstruction of justice wouldn't this be, I mean, you're a lawyer, David, wouldn't this be a leak? Isn't the special counsel's work supposed to be secret? I mean, you already have <laughs> you already have a spokesperson here for Trump saying the FBI leak of information regarding the president is outrageous, inexcusable, and illegal. Uh, do we have a leak about the special counsel already? You know, I don't know. I mean, and here's why I say I don't know, because one of the interesting things to come out of the Comey hearing was his complete takedown of this New York Times story um, that uh, from from March uh, that said that Trump officials were in on intercepts recorded talking to Russian intelligence officials, and so and that such that looked like a leak of classified information, but in fact it seems like it was no such thing. It seems like somebody was saying something that wasn't true. So you know what I'm going to do? I've, I've, I've kind of vowed to say when it comes to these anonymously sourced stories, uh, some of them are so unreliable that we don't even know if there's an actual leak. Uh, if uh, I would call I would classify a leak as a communication of, of truthful information uh, through an anonymous source. Uh, sometimes what we have are it appears a rumor and innuendo and fabrication. So it's really hard to say. But if there is a leak from the special counsel, uh, that would be disappointing, and that would not be in keeping with Robert Mueller's reputation as a man who's uh, incredibly uh, uh, closed-mouthed about things that he shouldn't speak about. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a member of his team won't blab, but that's not in keeping with his character. David, you've been willing to criticize the president whenever you think he's made a mistake with regard to – well, I think we could say with regard to anything – uh, but you have also come out and, and been writing about how you think that the Trump-Russia collusion narrative is looking shakier than ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said that after the Comey testimony. I said it again after the Sessions testimony. You know, there, there's sort of this notion, um, uh, you know, uh, if you read m- many parts of the left-wing Internet, that there's a big, big scandal out there. And the big, big scandal is that the Trump team and maybe even Trump himself at the highest levels conspired with Russian intelligence to help bring down Hillary Clinton's campaign. In other words, that people are willing to betray their country with our chief foreign foe to win a political contest. 
And so far, you know, there's been months of investigation. There's been leaks. There's been rumor. There's been innuendo. There's been testimony under oath. Uh, and we just haven't seen any of that. And, and in fact, you know, what we have seen is, is Comey saying that Trump himself wasn't personally under investigation, which deals a blow to sort of the big conspiracy theory. And then also him debunking that really explosive New York Times story that seemed to tie senior Trump officials to Russian intelligence officials. So if anything, the evidence has sort of gone the other way, that uh, that really, really big Trump-Russia collusion narrative just doesn't seem to be supported at all. If there's evidence out there that exists, it certainly hasn't made it into the public domain in any way, shape, or form. David French is a senior writer for National Review. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. When speech inspires violence, protect liberty while restoring virtue. David, always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, this, it's so interesting to see. Now we're in a position where how can we take at face value stories that run in the New York Times or Washington Post based on anonymous sources when, as David pointed out, the Comey shattered one of the big, shattered one of the big bombshell stories the Times ran with not long ago at all uh, on Russia and Trump collusion. And look, I, I stick with what I've been telling you all along. It doesn't even it doesn't even make sense. Forget about whether Trump would do it or not. It, it's it's a senseless thing to do. So uh, that that alone should make anybody very, very skeptical of it. Um, but active measures are not new when it comes to the Russians. I actually want to talk to you a bit about the history of Soviet active measures. They go all the way back to the 1930s, my friends. It involves co-opting people in this country, all kinds of subversion. You want to hear about that? You're going to, to stay with me through this break. Be right back. Welcome back, team. We often talk about the Russian uh, collusion investigation, and you've been hearing from government officials about attempts to undermine American democracy, about hacking, about getting involved in the election and trying to change the course of this country's future. That's not a new thing. In fact, it's been going on for a long time. Ian Johnson joins us now. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Clements Center for National Security and a lecturer in the history department at UT Austin. He has a piece on waronthorocks.com. Moscow's assault on American democracy began 80 years ago. Ian, thanks for joining, and tell me about how Moscow was getting into our business 80 years ago. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. Well, in the 1930s, the Soviet Union began to pursue what they call um, aktivnia meropriatnia, active measures or political warfare against the U.S. government. They had a couple of main ways to do this. One was to buy or influence politicians into steering policy towards Soviet interests, and the other was to acquire journalists sympathetic to their, their ends and get them to print material favoring to the Soviet Union. And what are some of the examples of this? I mean, you've got here in your piece the Kremlin's man in Congress. That, that certainly is eye-catching. Yeah, so the first major political figure that the that Soviet intelligence was able to, to acquire as an intelligence asset was Samuel Dickstein. He was a Democratic congressman from New York. And beginning in, in the mid-30s, he began spying for the Soviet Union. In exchange for funds that went into his re-election campaign, he delivered pro-Soviet speeches and also ran the predecessor to the House Un-American Activities Commission that would later become so famous. 
uh, essentially investigating people who were not favorable to the Soviet Union in American political life. And you tell me here that he first came to Moscow's attention when he assisted Soviet illegals, uh, the secret agents that are without official Soviet cover. Tell me about how, how this went down. That's right. Yeah, he had a great deal of influence in terms of getting visas and other things as a senior Democrat. He'd been in Congress for about 15 years when he began working for the Soviets. So when one of their agents needed a visa or a passport or some legal fiction to cover their activities in the U.S., Dickstein would help them get that access. And you say having a congressman on the payroll was quite an achievement, but there were even bigger plans for the Soviets. Uh, what were some of the ways that they went after New Deal Democrats? Well, they used a number of different means. One was to influence political clubs or organizations that were already favorably inclined to the Soviet Union. They did this through groups like the Comintern, which was seen as less overtly political uh, to most U.S. leftists. And then they also infiltrated university groups. They also met with senior members of, of the government. Uh, they had a number of people in both the State Department and the Treasury Department on their payroll at different times in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and their, their really biggest fish was when they met with Henry Wallace in 1945. Now, we're speaking to Ian Johnson. He is a lecturer in the History Department at UT Austin. He's got a piece, Moscow's Assaults on American Democracy Began 80 Years Ago. You can read it on War on the Rocks. Com. Tell me about the Soviet Union and the fake news bureau. Fake news gets a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. Fake news, it, obviously, in the headlines a great deal right now. This was something the Soviet Union had developed internally initially. Uh, under, under Stalin, obviously, there was brutal repression. After collectivization, six million Soviet citizens died, and they developed the mechanisms to conceal this information from their own public. They brought these tools overseas in the 1930s to the U.S. when they began essentially uh, – convincing various journalists in U.S. news agencies, such as United Press, Reuters, Time, to, uh, to receive money in exchange for favorable coverage of the Soviet Union. Some of these were ideologues. Others did it for money. There were about 22 journalists who were actively working for the Soviet Union by 1941. They also successfully recruited Michael Strait, son of the founder and editor-in-chief of The New Republic in 1937, you write here. Ooh, the New Republic, infiltrated by a commie. Not a big surprise to some of those listening. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the, the New Republic's, the son of the founder, he would actually later become the, the managing, uh, managing editor. And in that position, he would hire uh, Henry Wallace, who was also associated with the Soviet Union, uh, intelligence work, and a number of other communist sympathizers. And there were, there were newspapers that were uh, specifically targeted by agents of influence for the Soviets in this country back in the 30s. I mean, I feel like people don't ever hear this history, Ian. Uh, I feel like the not only were these active measures not taught in school, but also just the, the history of the Communist Party in America and the Soviet connections to it is whitewashed. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. I think that since the end of the Soviet Union, uh, we've, we've kind of forgotten a lot of this history. And, and really the nature of the conflict itself. And some of these, they, they got these papers, they were, so they were pushing propaganda. I mean, I think this is the key point for everybody listening. The Soviet Union was pushing propaganda in this country, paying off journalists, setting up magazines and newspapers to push their own propaganda line. It was what, what RT, in a sense, which I know is Russia and Kremlin-funded and not Soviet, but what RT does today on cable news the Soviets were doing in this country in print. They were just doing it almost 100 years ago. 
That's right. I, I think it's become even more strategically significant for the Russian Federation than it was for the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union had enormous military and economic capacities that the Russian Federation just does not have today. As a result, they've emphasized these kind of active measures ever more so than, than even the Soviets did at their height of their intelligence activities. What was the single, for you, the single most brazen act of propaganda the Soviets uh, pulled off uh, on either on American soil or, or dealing with Americans? Well, I think uh, the, the most dramatic for me when you read material in Russia is, is again, this, this encounter with Henry Wallace. He's running for vice, or he, is the, he was the vice president uh, under FDR. He's removed in 44 and replaced with, with Harry Truman. He turns to the Soviets in the fall of 1945 and basically offers, in exchange for financing and support, that he will move the United States closer and closer to the Soviet orbit and essentially carry out pro-Soviet policies, doing such things as potentially giving up the United States' nuclear monopoly in 1945. And he would run against Truman unsuccessfully in 1948. Uh, but the, the, the brazenness of a, a sitting cabinet member, he was Secretary of Commerce at the time, meeting with the station chief of the KGB uh, in Washington, D.C. is pretty remarkable. That's astonishing, Ian. You know, they, they, they don't teach this in school. This is covered up. People don't read about it. They don't know. I'm sure people listening were just thinking, wow, that is crazy. Ian, where can people read more of your work? Well, I've got a book coming out with Oxford University Press entitled The Faustian Pact, which explores secret Soviet-German military cooperation in the interwar period. Well, please do write for War on the Rocks. Please yeah. do come back, uh, come back and tell us about the book when it's ready. We'd love to have you on. Check out Ian's piece, Moscow's Assaults on Democracy, on American Democracy, began 80 years ago. Ian Johnson, great to have you, sir. Thank you. I swear, this country is going to sue itself into oblivion. Uh, lawyers are going to tear this place apart if we let them, or at least a litigious, uh, lawsuit-happy attitude is just going to continue to cause problems for all of us. I mean, for our businesses and our in our personal lives. I mean, it's just, there's so much over uh, over-suing and over-lawyering going on in the world. And I think a great example of this is what's happening right now with the lawsuit uh, filed against Donald Trump with nearly 200 congressional Democrats, according to ABC News, joining this lawsuit, uh, I'm sorry, Democratic lawmakers, rather, joining this lawsuit, uh, saying that he has breached the clause of the Constitution that has to do with emoluments, so here we are now. Let's just take a quick moment to look at the emoluments clause together. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument office or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Article 1. Section 9, Clause 8. I know, as an aside, an emolument is just a fancy way of saying a, a fee or salary or some form of profit you get from your employment, from the office that you hold. Now, Trump, as you may know, uh, has passed on the stewardship of the Trump organization, the Trump company, to his children, but he still maintains ownership of it. And so you have this group 
uh, with 196 members from Congress and 30 from the Senate, uh, 30 from the Senate and 166 from the House of Representatives, say that, quote, they seek to obtain relief from the president's continuing violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Uh, and this has to do with foreign influence in the U.S. government. Now, first of all, they're pushing this in part because it's yet another layer to the Russia collusion. Trump is an agent of the Kremlin, all, all that stuff. Right. So we understand that that's one of this just helps and, and creates more uh, leeway for them to run with that storyline. So that's one reason why we see uh, the, the emoluments clause brought up continuously. Um, and it's also, as I mentioned earlier in the week, it's just continued lawfare against Trump and against his administration. It doesn't matter if the lawsuit is frivolous or meritless, as long as it damages Trump, slows down Trump, causes problems for the president, his people, his agenda. Uh, obviously, the resistance, as they call themselves, uh, will continue doing this. Uh, they view this as a really useful tool if they can't convince enough of the American people to elect Democrats in office and give them the power to to enact what they want, and they can't rely on judges to give them everything they want, they must figure, okay, well, let's just completely entangle like Gulliver with the Lilliputians, just tie him down with endless strings. And that's what they're trying to do here with uh, the Emoluments Clause lawsuit. Um this has to do with preventing foreign influence, by the way, which is funny because the same people that are bringing this lawsuit uh, had no problem with Hillary Clinton's husband getting paid huge sums of money for speeches by foreign governments and by businesses closely tied to foreign governments. So that was not a problem then. And that was a that was a direct fee for service transaction with what the complaint is here. Believe it or not, from these uh, people signing on to this is that because Trump owns property, because the Trump organization owns properties abroad, where, for example, somebody will rent a hotel room, that is uh, a form of a violation of the emoluments clause. Right? So if, if a Russian guy stays at the Trump, I don't even know if there is like the Trump International Hotel in Moscow, but let's just theoretically, if a Russian guy stays at that Trump Tower Moscow, uh, because that $300 goes to the Trump organization in some capacity, He's that's undue influence on the president of the United States. Think about how crazy this is, by the way. I mean, you know, let's also keep in mind that you're talking with somebody who's already a billionaire. So the ability to affect a billionaire with a financial transaction is very different than the grasping uh, grifters uh, that the Clintons were. Right. I mean, the, the Clintons were just wh whatever they could do to get their hands on more cash. They're willing to do, as Hillary said, when they were uh, leaving the White House, they were, quote, dead broke. Uh, and they had two houses, <laughs> two houses. that she We had two houses. It was so hard. Uh, and those two houses uh, meant that and by the way, their mansions uh, meant that they were desperate to find ways to scare up some cash. Uh, so what I'm saying here is they weren't raising these concerns about Hillary as secretary of state. And they I don't think they would have raised them either uh, necessarily when she was president because they're so duplicitous in the media and they're such a double standard. But giving Bill Clinton a check for like a half a million dollars to give a speech has much more uh, is much more likely to have influence or impact. Never mind all the money that went to Hillary as well than 
well, first of all, then giving a half million dollars to Trump, but even beyond that, then people engage in honest business transactions abroad that affect his businesses uh, one way or another. So what, what I'm saying here is this is when they're claiming that Trump is violating the emoluments clause, it's sort of like saying that uh, they're, that by dropping a pebble in the ocean, you're going to create a tidal wave, right? That little, uh, little things that can be done here and there that would in some fashion, in some form, benefit the Trump organization uh, will change Donald Trump, will unduly influence his foreign policy. Now, if someone gave Trump a big bag of gold coins or someone just was, was handing Trump himself cash, yeah, we understand that's a bribe. That would be uh, illegal in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, but to say that Trump, because he could have some uh, tangential benefit uh, to his business because of foreigners abroad uh, engaged in honest business transactions with them, you know, it's not like he decided after he became president, I'm going to start setting up hotels all over the world. And uh, they've already, they're already there. Uh, this would also mean, if you want to take this to its com- logical ends, could you invest in uh, foreign securities if you were going to be an office holder, right? Could you buy, you know, the could you buy Greek or, well, buy Greek bonds? Good luck with that. But could you buy British you know, the British pound on the, on the uh, you know, th- these are the questions you have to ask. You know, where does this stop? What becomes an emolument then? Um, if you own, here, here's an example, if you owned a hotel in the United States that had a lot of international travel, let's say there were a lot of Russians that were coming here uh, and staying in your hotel and you were the president, does that, are, are you, that now is considered a violation of the emoluments clause? Now, now you're, um, you, you know, now they, they're going to sue you over this? Anyway, uh, the suit is filed. It's being filed today in district court. This is what's part of the suit is uh, writes the following through this measure. The nation's founders invested members of Congress with an important role in preventing the corruption and foreign influence that the founders sought to avoid. The suit reads uh, President Donald J. Trump has a financial interest in vast business holdings around the world that engage with foreign governments and receive benefits from those governments. You know what often doesn't get talked about is that when you go into government service, uh, you are forced to sell stock and you don't pay taxes on it because you're being forced to sell stock. How do they think this would go? Is Trump, I mean, let, let's assume for a moment, right? Let's just play this argument out for a minute. Let's just, because this is, again, lawfare against Trump. It is the legal Lilliputians tying Trump down with, uh, with endless threads trying to stop him from implementing the agenda. Gulliver's travel reference, by the way, for those of you wondering, Lilliputians. Um, but let's assume for a moment that it's true and that this is a violation of the Emoluments Clause. W- what is the remedy? Does that mean that Trump has to have a—he uh, has to do what exactly? He has to sell his entire business? What's his—sell his stake in the business? W- who will arrange that? What's it, what's it worth? What is that? You know, he, he claims it's worth billions of dollars. Is there a buyer for it? Uh, what's the timeline for the sale of that? You know, it's it's not as straightforward. It's not as easy as just, oh, well, he has business interests abroad. Uh, therefore, there's a problem. But I, I know that the Democrats want to make it about that. But y- you'll you'll see a pattern here. It's obvious. And the pattern is that 
if there is a means, a legal means, to just harass even the Trump administration, Democrats are completely okay with employing it. I mean, if they can find a means, if they can uh, come up with a way to uh, just bother Trump. Uh, I mean, this emoluments clause lawsuit, I don't think it's going anywhere. What do they really think is going to happen? Here, the law, quote, the lawsuit asks the court to bar Trump and subsequent presidents from accepting any benefits from foreign states without first obtaining congressional consent. What's a benefit from a foreign state? Is a private citizen in uh, Shanghai who stays in a Trump, uh, a Trump, you know, international hotel? That's a benefit to the president. Like I said, this is throwing a this is throwing a pebble in the ocean and saying it's creating a tidal wave. Um, I, one thing about, for example, Michael Bloomberg that I I know people are like Bloomberg, he's terrible. I know he's really bad on the Second Amendment. He's really big on the nanny state. A lot of things does not like about the guy, but he understands efficiency and also he's worth forty billion or sixty billion or whatever it is, it's tens of billions of dollars. I'm not going to buy that guy off. Special interests aren't going to throw a little cash his way and uh, determine what he's going to do, right? In fact, he funds special interests himself, which is an advantage. And I think that with Trump, because he's a, a billionaire, and yeah, people will say that he's obviously got a huge ego and wants to expand his brand and everything even more. I'm sure that's true. Uh, but because he's already a billionaire, you know, uh, he's not getting a paper bag full of 50 grand under the table to veto legislation, okay? That's just not happening. And to suggest that he is going to be unduly influenced because of his ownership in a corporation that has, you know, hotels and business interests around the world is to think that somehow there's enough leverage to apply on him to get him to do what somebody wants without it, by the way, being public, right? I mean, what? So, I mean, if the Russian government like seized all of Trump's hotels or all of his properties, or I don't even know where Trump has properties around the world, if any government seized all of his properties and said, you better do what we want or else, uh, that would be a big problem for that country. And Trump wouldn't do it. So trying to hold him hostage to the policy whims of uh, foreign governments based on his business interests is, again, we can just we, we use Occam's razor here, my friends, and go to the simplest argument. It's just absurd. It's not feasible to do this. Never mind uh, how deep into the legalese we can get on the emoluments clause. Uh, it's just not a, a plausible uh, it's not a, a plausible objection, meaning that to affect Trump's business interest in such a way that he helps a foreign government and hurts the United States. You can't even think of a scenario where that would occur. Never mind the fact that I think it doesn't. The emoluments clause violation is not what's happening here. All right, team. Quick break. Much more coming. Stay with me. Hey, Team Buck. I I wanted to do a little throwback to something that I I meant to hit on yesterday but didn't get around to uh, because it's making the round still among the uh, various uh, Democrat leftist sites out there. Uh, Kamala Harris is perhaps a future presidential aspirant, not clear yet, but she's a senator from California, and she has begun to make a name for herself in these recent hearings on Russia and Trump and collusion and surveillance. Uh, And the way she's done it is by, as a former prosecutor, what would be called badgering the witness. Now, let me just play some of the uh, audio of her exchanges uh, recently with both the uh, the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, 
Um, and and then I want to talk to you about how the commentary, of course, on the left is that this is uh, terrible. It's uh, it's misogynistic. This is sexism on display. I'm sure some are saying it's racism, too, because she is a minority female. Uh, but he, here's how she thinks she should speak to the attorney general during these hearings. Well, I'm asking when you well, would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy, Chairman, did yeah. you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been be asked should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair <laughs> to control the hearing. Senator Harris, let him answer. Please do. Uh, Thank you. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? They're asking the senator to allow the attorney general to answer the question. She likes to ask questions and then interrupt and inter- interpose over the response uh, whatever she decides needs to be said or to, you know, to add her commentary to it. And it, it goes on, by the way. For a yes or no, did you ask well, your No, the staff answer is yes, I consulted. Senator, did you ask your staff uh, to see the policy? Expired. <laughs> Apparently Senator not. Cornyn. Are you willing or are you... So her, her time expired. Uh, is, is this going to turn into another she persisted moment? Uh, you know, she... Remember that when Elizabeth Warren kept talking and wasn't obeying the rules of the Senate and, the, the, and then they turned that into a, a rallying cry, she persisted. Uh, Kamala Harris is is interrupting a witness and she has an allotted amount of time and she went beyond her time. Why is this an issue? But but this isn't the only time this has happened. Uh, let's go to the recent um, discussion or recent exchange she had, rather, with the uh, deputy attorney general. To be fully independent of your ability, statutorily and legally, to fire him. He is. He has the. Yes or no, sir. He, he has the full independence. It's authorized by those regulations. And Are Senator, you willing said, to do as has been with the, done before? With the senator suspend, the chair is going to exercise its right to allow the witnesses to answer the question, and the committee is on notice to provide the witnesses the courtesy, which has not been extended all the way across, ex- extend the courtesy for questions to get answered. Mr. Chairman, respectfully, Mr. Rosenstein, I would point out you, that this witness has joked with the, as we all have, the senator ability to filibuster. So she's jumping all over the uh, deputy attorney general here and, and acting like he's a, a hostile witness on the stand. I know she comes from a prosecutorial background, but the, the, the Rosenstein here is not uh, on trial. Um, he's just merely testifying before the Senate. And and she and she was just being rude flat out. But when you Google uh, Ka- uh, Kamala Harris, uh, you see uh, Kamala Harris using repeated interruptions to raise cash. And then Vox says people keep interrupting Senator Kam- uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, uh, and then Kamala Harris was interrupted again today. Mother Jones. Uh, it just keeps going on and. On and, and it just anyway, uh, you know, sure, sure enough, they can turn even this even this into a case of uh, a Democrat being mistreated, a Democrat a minority female being mistreated. And, and when you saw this exchange, uh, when you watched it as it was going on, you're just thinking to yourself, why can't she just let the guy, whether it's Rosenstein or Sessions, why can't she just let him answer the question? But of course, she's trying to 
uh, create headlines for herself. And, and the left is, has been running with this. I just think it's it's fast. And it's now a fundraising technique. No, no surprise there at all. Um, all right, team, I'm going to hit a, a break. Third hour coming up here. Much more. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Team, you may hear that the special counsel that's currently investigating the Russia-Trump allegations, leaks, collusion, all of that, uh, you may hear them described as a kangaroo court or a star chamber proceeding. Uh, Interestingly enough, kangaroo court doesn't really... No one really knows where the term comes from. There are speculation that obviously, well, it's Australian because that's the only place where you find kangaroos. Some say that it was used by miners in California in the uh, uh, 1840s because of claim jumpers who would jump from one claim to another. Uh, Others say that it's just jumping to conclusions like a kangaroo is how you get a kangaroo court. Uh, Star Chamber, however, has a much more storied and definite history, one that I think is uh, worth discussing with you a little bit before we get into what the real modern star chamber today is. Now, it's named for a court that first came about in uh, London, in Westminster. So you go back to England in the end of the 15th century, and a decision was made that there needed to be an additional, in the Palace of Westminster— Uh, which is currently Westminster Palace is where the British Parliament sits, uh, that they needed to set up a a court of law that would deal with some uh, additional ancillary issues. Uh, That would be, it was sort of like an administrative court uh, that could handle things off to the side. Um, And at first it started out, as so many ideas of government do, as a relatively minor addition Um, meant for the convenience of, well, the the administrators as well as those who were facing this court. It is named for the room in Westminster Palace, by the way. Star Chamber is a reference to the stars on the ceiling, the design on the ceiling of the courtroom itself. And initially, like I said, it was handling relatively minor issues. Uh, It was created by King Henry VII in 1487. Uh, And it went on, though, to become a useful tool of the state. And then it turned and it became where you would send or where you would expect nobility to be tried because the lower courts or the other courts, I should say, um, were slow to prosecute a lord or a noble for any crime because of their power, wealth and connections. So the Star Chamber was a separate proceeding that was supposed to be uh, pursuing the uh, ideals of justice. Um, And that was how it continued on for a while. Um, But then it became, so it was used against the aristocracy. It was used as as a court for the aristocracy uh, in England. Um, But then it became a place where politics took hold. And they found means of prosecuting people for, Crimes like sedition and libel. Uh, so it became in a place where idea crimes, conspiracy, uh, and, and you were forced to testify. And if your testif- testimony was not 
acceptable to the uh, the judges and counselors. There were, I believe, two judges and two counselors who were royal counselors uh, who were part of this panel. Um, they would then charge you with perjury, and you had no right against self-incrimination. In fact, th- it is believed that the founders, when they created in uh, our Bill of Rights, our right against our Fifth Amendment right, you know, plead the Fifth, uh, against self-incrimination, it was in response to the history of the Star Chamber forcing people to answer questions and then just throwing them in prison because their answers were considered unsatisfactory and uh, perjurious. Uh, so they got rid of this court in the early 17th century, uh, but it clearly had, in 1641, the Long Parliament abolished it, but it, it had ramifications and to this day is used as a is a as a disparaging term, right? If you say something is oh, this is a star chamber proceeding, it means that it's politicized. The accused have very few rights, and it is not really about justice. It is about uh, a political ends, and the fix is in, so to speak. Now, whether the uh, investigation that Robert Mueller of the FBI is going to be heading up with special counsel could accurately be called a star report. We, we don't know yet. Uh, Mueller has a really good reputation. I should note that Comey also, though, had a great reputation for honesty, and I think now very fair-minded people question at least whether he's a, a, a political operative or not, never mind whether he is somebody who uh, is lacking in integrity despite all of his uh, nurturing of a certain image in the press. But I thought it was interesting to read earlier in the week a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that specifically mentions the Star Chamber, but it's not referring to uh, the Mueller proceeding, although I think you will see people call that a, a Star Chamber-like proceeding in time. Just trust me on that one. Uh, it conjures up, you know, people like the Star Chamber, Inquisition. These are the his- historical allusions that will be made by writers and commentators about the special counsel investigation. Um, but when you look at uh, the real problems facing Americans and the courts in which they have really no redress, that's when you talk about the tyranny of the administrative state. Uh, and here's a piece. There's this w- wonderful piece by John Tierney in the Wall Street Journal He writes, like blind men in the fable who try to describe an elephant by feeling different parts of its body, they're not perceiving the whole problem, the enormous rogue beast known as the administrative state. Sometimes called the regulatory state or the deep state, it is a government within the government run by the president and the dozens of federal agencies that assume powers once claimed only by kings. In place of royal decrees, they issue rules and send out guidance letters like the one from an education department official in 2011 that stripped college students of due process when accused of sexual misconduct. Unelected bureaucrats not only write their own laws, they also interpret these laws and enforce them in their own courts with their own judges. All this is in blatant violation of the Constitution, says scallop Philip Hamburger, who is a constitutional, great name, a constitutional scholar and winner of the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Prize uh, for his book is Administrative Law Unhelpful. Uh, Unlawful, rather. It is also unhelpful. He writes, Essentially, much of the Bill of Rights Rights has been gutted. 
the government can choose to proceed against you in a trial in court with constitutional processes, or it can use an administrative proceeding where you don't have the right to be heard by a real judge or a jury, and you don't have the right to full due process of law, our fundamental procedural freedoms, which once were guarantees, have become mere options. He uh, cites specifically, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, These are places where there are regulatory proceedings against individuals that are just decided by these federal, uh, federal bodies. Um, and you have very little in the way of redress once they de- once they come to a decision, and it is binding, it is legally binding, and can destroy your business, can can honestly ruin your life. Uh, in this piece, by the way, this is where I thought of the uh, the the uh, Star Chamber. Here's what he talks about, or here's what he writes: uh, King James, who reigned in England from 1603 to 1625 claimed that divinely granted absolute power authorized him to suspend laws enacted by Parliament or dispense with them for any favored person. Uh, James also made his own laws bypassing Parliament and the courts by issuing proclamations and using his royal prerogative to establish commissions and tribunals. He exploited the infamous Star Chamber, a court that got its name from the gilded stars on its ceiling. End quotes. So like I said, that's where you get the Star Chamber from. Uh, in reality, the Star Chamber, he makes the argument here, was an administrative court run amok. It was an administrative agency that was allowed to dispense with all protections of the accused. It was done in secret, out of public view, and therefore the government's power only increased, right? You can see when you go back to the founding, the government's obsession, uh, I'm sorry, the founders' obsession with putting restraints on the power of government because they understood without restraints, government power will only increase. Unless you explicitly state it and put checks and balances there and have opposing forces, not just things written down, but actual a, a structure of government where one side of it where one side of it can oppose and be co-equal to another, uh, without that, you're just going to invite a, a full and absolutist tyranny. It's just a question of time. Um, so this is, I think it's interesting as you look more at the regulatory state and you find yourself in a place where you realize that our government right now is doing so much all the time and it doesn't feel like it's making things better in a lot of cases. It's not accountable. And these federal bodies, we talk about the deep state. Uh, there's not just a deep state that opposes Trump. There's a deep state that opposes the American people. I mean, there is a bureaucratic behemoth, uh, a regulatory machinery, a rule-making, rule-enforcing monster that has, it's not just in D.C., right? It's tentacles and its affiliates are all across the country. Uh, They are affecting us in our day-to-day lives without accountability and without our say-so. And I think it's time that we look much more closely at that. Trump says that he will cut back on this. He'll go after the red tape and the regulations. I certainly hope that is the case because the administrative state is a creeping tyranny in this country. We'll hit a quick break, team. We'll be back in just a few. What the heck is cultural appropriation? Well, here's a definition that I found uh, online. Taking intellectual property, traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, or artifacts from someone else's culture without permission. 
This can include the unauthorized use of another culture's dance, dress, music, language, folklore, cuisine, traditional medicine, religious symbols, etc. Now, this is a term, cultural appropriation, that has just come into common usage on the left and among progressives in recent years. And before I, I get into a, a breakdown of, of why it is completely insane, let me just say that it has real consequences for people. A piece of the New York Times today that talked about how in Canada last month, three uh, writers lost their jobs because they defended quote, cultural appropriation. Let me read to you from this. The controversy began when Hal Nidzviki, editor of Right, the magazine of the Canadian Writers' Union, wrote an editorial defending the right of white authors to create characters from minority or indigenous backgrounds. Within days, a social media backlash forced him to resign. The Writers' Union issued an apology for an article that its equity task force claimed retrenches the deeply racist assumptions held about art. Another editor, Jonathan Kay of the Walrus magazine, was also compelled to step down after tweeting his support for Mr. Nidzviki. Uh, meanwhile, the broadcaster, CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, moved Steve LaDurante, managing editor of its flagship news program, The National, to a different post because of an unacceptable tweet about the controversy. I know that this is up in Canada, but there are similar stories here about accusations of cultural appropriation and people demanding that there be uh, consequences for it. Um, that, and, and it doesn't matter how petty, I should note, the accusation may be. Uh, for example, the sculptor Sam Durant, this is also in this New York Times piece, the sculptor Sam Durant's piece Scaffold, which honors 38 Native Americans executed in 1862 in Minneapolis, was in the process of being assembled in the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden, but after protests from indigenous activists that Mr. Durant was appropriating their history, the artist dismantled his own work and made its wood available to be burned in a Dakota Sioux ceremony. I mean, you're not allowed to even depict in art now other cultures. That is considered a form of, cult, quote, cultural appropriation. Now, among the insane leftist ideas, uh, among the, the crazy progressive tropes that are out there, cultural appropriation is almost in a class by itself. Uh, because, first of all, it, it falls apart with even basic scrutiny. Uh, as I read to you from that definition, quote, uh, it's the taking uh, without, from quote, from someone else's culture without permission. Who, who gives that permission? I think that's a fair question to ask, isn't it? How do you get permission to paint uh, a Native American scene or to cook food that is from another culture? I, I, I don't know where you go. Is there a special body that is Im imbued with the power to... To, to give you the right so that it's no longer an appropriation? Uh, who does the authorizing is the question that we should be asking. And what you find out is that in uh, communities where th there, are two, there are two reasons for this phenomenon uh, of accusations of, of cultural appropriation. And as I said, these are taken seriously by progressives on the left. They expect there to be consequences. Uh, this is not some 
joke to them. They're very, very serious about this. Okay, well, the consequences for uh, cultural, or rather the, re, the groups that push uh, cultural appropriation include self-righteous leftists who are always looking for a means to virtue signal, right? So this is where you get the college campus version of, hey, we can't, we can't be uh, serving General So chicken in the cafeteria. By the way, this was, a real, this was a real news story because it's an appropriation of Chinese food and we're not even doing it properly. Or if we're making pho, which is a Vietnamese noodle dish, uh, and it's, they're adding things into it that aren't in the traditional. These are in college cafeterias. People get upset about this. Uh, certainly costumes at Halloween, you see this with cultural appropriation. Are you dressed as a Native American with a headdress or uh, you dress like a Sioux warrior and any of these things? People get outraged about this, right? And this led to the Yale controversy with even young kids, toddlers who were getting dressed up in Native garb. All of a sudden, everyone gets upset about this. So there's a big component of it, which is just virtue signaling, which is people that are looking to show how much they care, how much they are invested in, margin, quote, marginalized communities, just as a show of how great they are. They really don't care about those communities, but they want everyone to think they care. But then there's another component of it, uh, which, are, which includes those who directly benefit, uh, the, the hustlers out there, the scam artists, the, uh, the gatekeepers, so to speak, of the authorization of cultural appropriation. Uh, and here's what they want. They want money. And this came up recently uh, in this meeting by the Intergovernmental, and Reason.com gets a hat tip here, the Intergovernmental Committee on Intellectual Property and Genetic Resources, Traditional Knowledge and Folklore, uh, had a meeting in Geneva this past week to talk about how they can use intellectual property laws to stop the misappropriation and misuse of traditional cultural expression. They want copyrights on culture, my friends. That is what this is all about. Uh, and this has already happened, I should note. There have been uh, groups that have sued uh, they have sued because they say, for example, Urban Outfitters was sued for its Navajo line because the Navajo Nation, which is a cohesive political entity in this country, uh, brought, a, brought a suit in a U.S. court saying you've, appropri you've appropriated. So that set a precedent. But now others are going to see this as well. This is an opportunity to do two things on the left, to virtue signal and to cash in, to demand money, to demand payment by these gatekeepers who say they speak for these groups, whether they do or not, who knows. But once there's money to be made, then it just enhances the push for people to uh, claim outrage at the appropriation of culture. And uh, I'm going to keep watching this because cultural appropriation is one of my favorite issues to look at because it's so crazy um, and it's so beyond what any rational person would be concerned about on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, if you're appropriating culture, by the way, and you're doing it in a way that celebrates it, how is that a problem? Like if I'm eating the food of the people of, of, of Vietnam or Venezuela, I would think that they would be you know, pleased that I'm eating their cuisine, right? If I'm enjoying and celebrating their culture, how is that anything other than a compliment? I mean, it's just insane. But once again, it's about virtue signaling, and it's about money. And with the social justice wars, if you can combine those things, trust me, they're going to go for it. We'll be right back.
understand the urgency. I understand it's my responsibility. Uh, we're not winning in Afghanistan right now, and we will correct this uh, as soon as possible. I believe the three things we are asking for stand on their own merit, however, as we look more broadly at the protection of the country. Uh, but that, that I, in no way does that relieve me of the need to deliver that strategy to you, sir. That was Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis talking about Afghanistan. Uh, we are not winning, which I can tell you from counterinsurgency doctrine and training means when you're not winning, you are losing because the bad guys can just continue to disrupt and degrade. You are on a clock. At some point, the people in the country in which you're fighting that counterinsurgency cease to believe that you will be able to decisively defeat the opposition. Now, Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is obviously incredibly well-respected across the political spectrum, is supposed to come up with and deliver a new strategy for Afghanistan, uh, for the U.S. role in Afghanistan in uh, mid-July. I am going to say that my expectations here are that the new strategy will be, unfortunately, quite similar to previous strategies. We know, as of yesterday, the Pentagon has received, and therefore Mattis, as Secretary of Defense, will have discretion over uh, sending additional troops, U.S. troops, into Afghanistan. Right now, the number stands just above 8,000. President Obama had wanted to drop the number of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan down to around 5,000, but changed his mind on that. And that was because of the deteriorating security situation. Uh, there was a recent uh, bombing in Kabul that was the single most deadly terrorist attack in the history of the conflict, which has now been going on for 16 years. You had 150 people were killed last month uh, in May in, in Kabul uh, in the middle of the most protected city in the entire country uh, so and also in a in a part of the capital that had a lot of security so this is not going well uh, the war in Afghanistan is at best you could say a stalemate in slow decline for our side in fact as I was reading through a comprehensive security assessment because this is the kind of stuff I do in my free time delivered to Congress about the security assessment in Afghanistan I was struck by how similar the rhetoric continues to be year in and year out, how the strategy never really shifts, and how it's a lot of, on the one hand, on the other hand, analysis. Now, the, the threat in Afghanistan right now comes from uh, a variety of actors, primarily the Taliban, uh, but there's also the Haqqani Network, which works with the Taliban, um, and they are well-trained, well-armed, and can be incredibly lethal in their operations. And in fact, uh, Sirajuddin uh, Haqqani is a Taliban deputy, and so he has made sure that there is real influence uh, from or with the Haqqani network in the Taliban leadership ranks. You also have uh, the Islamic State trying to establish itself in the east of the country along the border with Pakistan. Uh, and there are still remnants of al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda in South Asia is a group that is seeking to expand its uh, operational capabilities and to become a more lethal 
actor on the battlefield of Afghanistan and, of course, in Pakistan and broader South Asia as well. So that the threats haven't changed. Uh, these are the same bad guys with the addition of the Islamic State into the mix. These are not uh, different threats than we have faced in Afghanistan in the past. Uh, so then we have to ask ourselves, well, how are we doing against that threat? And you can look at this from the perspective of the U.S. Uh, two core responsibilities right now in Afghanistan, along with our coalition uh, partners. There are a number of countries, a whole bunch of NATO countries that have contributed uh, soldiers into this fight. They are largely in the advise and assist role. And those are the two pillars of our strategy and our ally strategy in Afghanistan. There's counterterrorism. So uh, we will help in direct action to go after bad guys, whether they're Haqqani, senior Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda in South Asia, any of the international jihadist groups and, and their associates and, and various entities, uh, we go after them under the counterterrorism side of the mission. That's part one. And part two is the very broad uh, equip, assist, train, and advise mission that the U.S. has been engaged in for many years now. Uh, depending on whose estimates you believe or you think are more accurate, perhaps, a better way to put it, um, there's anywhere from 10 to 20 or maybe even 30 percent of the country of Afghanistan right now is contested territory, meaning the Taliban believes that it will or the Taliban is either in control uh, or is fighting, actively fighting for control of the area. Now, all the major cities, all the major uh, urban centers of Afghanistan, um, Herat, uh, Kunduz, Kabul, uh, Jalalabad, they're all in uh, Kandahar City. They're all in the hands of the central government. So there is no major city that the Taliban is currently in control of. But in the countryside, that's where the Taliban has a much greater sway. And the assessments that you get are always going to be in part distorted by the fact that our advise and assist mission is going to be largely uh, in places where there are troop concentrations, Afghan troop concentrations. And so their ability to see with their own eyes, meaning Western and U.S. troops, uh, their ability to see what's going on themselves is not quite what it would be as in cases where we have large numbers. Remember, we had over 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan uh, while Obama was in office. So our security assessment is relying, at least in part, on asking, or probably in large part, depending on what, which area of the country we're talking about, on asking the Afghan National Security Forces, what are you seeing? How are things in your sector? How are, how are things going in your area of responsibility? And as you can imagine, you don't always get the most forthright and accurate assessments, especially when you have problems like the Taliban infiltrating certain units, the Taliban paying off uh, local uh, leadership of either the police or the military on the Afghan side. And s support for the Taliban in the countryside is likely growing, not because necessarily there are a lot of Afghans who are uh, ethnic Pashtuns and Pashto speakers. Remember, the, the primary ethnicity or the, the, the primary ethnicity of the Taliban is Pashtun, and they speak Pashto. 
whereas many of the other Afghans that we've worked with in the past in the Northern Alliance, for example, um, you are dealing with people who are uh, Tajik um, and Uzbek and in terms of their ethnicity, uh, and they speak Dari, uh, which is similar to Farsi, which is a language spoken in Iran, also often called Persian, especially in America. Um, but Farsi is, is the term that we more often use for it. And Dari is similar to Farsi and the, uh, the Tajiks and the different ethnic groups that were part of the Northern Alliance that worked with us to uh, overthrow the Taliban back in 2001-2002. Uh, uh, they are groups that, uh, or they are ethnicities that are generally not associated with the Taliban, but the Taliban has been expanding its footprint even into parts of the country that traditionally are not Pashtun strongholds. So uh, as we look at what's going on now, we also have to keep in mind what the end goal of all of this is supposed to be. And we are aware of the fact that uh, the Taliban is supposed to negotiate with us. Uh, this is from, uh, it, it is tough for me to read this. This is from the congressional report that was delivered at the end of last year um, and this is just a quote from it. This is Department of Defense report to Congress on the situation in Afghanistan. Quote, the U.S. and Afghan governments agree that the best way to ensure lasting peace and security in Afghanistan is reconciliation and a political settlement with the Taliban. The United States continues to support an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned reconciliation process as the surest path to peace in Afghanistan and supports any process that includes violent extremist groups laying down their arms. The success of an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned peace process will require the Taliban and other armed opposition groups to end violence, break ties with international terrorist groups, and accept Afghan constitutional safeguards for women and ethnic minorities. End quote. That is a lot of happy talk, I'm afraid. The Taliban is not going to lay down its arms. If the Taliban does lay down its arms for any period of time, it would just be a feint. It would be a head fake. It would be in an effort to get us to draw down our force posture to a point where we're not going to go back in, right? If, if we drop below a certain number, uh, the chance of there being a an entire re-escalation, I think, dramatically goes down because we just won't have the political will, once again, to go back into Afghanistan in large numbers, uh, and understandably so, I might add, given that we've already been there for 16 years. Um, but that a negotiation with the Taliban is even on the table suggests that the Taliban is not going to uh, stop doing what it's doing anytime soon because, as the famous saying goes, we have all the clocks, but they have all the time, right? They are not going anywhere. They're staying. This is their country and so if they can continue to uh, erode the will of the central government to fight, if they can make people feel uncertain and, uh, and increase their sense of anxiety that uh, the government can't provide security for them, people will start to switch over to the Taliban side. So the idea that we're going to negotiate out of this with the Taliban, I think, is uh, it makes us think that there can be some end in sight, but it's just not realistic. Or if it is realistic, it will just lead to eventually, I think, a Taliban takeover. What do you do in a power sharing agreement if the U.S. military presence then 
has to be withdrawn and the any NATO presence has to be withdrawn. Uh, what do you do if the Taliban reneges on its agreements and decides that it is going to march on Kabul or decides that it's going to tur- just turn to violence and take control of the whole country? We're going to invade Afghanistan again. So there are limited limited options here for us. And I know that Mattis, look, he is... Uh, as well thought of as anybody at the top of the military chain of command. Uh, he knows a heck of a lot more about this than me or anybody else I know on the subject. I don't know if there is a strategy. I, I literally don't know if it is possible to come up with a strategy for us to achieve the goal of a lasting, stable, self-defense-capable Afghanistan. Um, I don't know. Uh, I have my concerns about that. And uh, that we have given Mattis the latitude to increase troop levels and to come up with a new strategy this is a positive development. The Trump administration is making some of the right moves, but this is not a fight that we're going to be able to turn around quickly. And I'm not sure that the objective is achievable no matter what we do. We'll be right back. Oh, no, it might get stinky in the city this summer here in New York, at least. I've seen some other cities recently also doing this though so this doesn't just affect me i know a lot of you are thinking what is your problem new york city boy Uh, but they are changing some of the uh, ordinances uh, for the city when it comes to quality of life crimes the kind of violations that uh, include noise on the street uh, that include urination in public and uh, other more minor but still annoying uh, violations of drinking in public, blasting loud music, that will all be moved from being a low-level criminal summons uh, into an administrative hearing. So you just show up and pay a fine and that's it. Uh, a few things. First of all, I, I hate uh, excess noise. So my... I, I'm honest about it. My inner statist comes out whenever I hear people who are blasting music in public uh, and also people who uh, think that it's, for whatever reason, just completely fine to take their, their car and modify it or their motorcycle and modify it so that the muffler is at ear-piercing decibels. And if you know, You might not have this in your area. You might have a lot of it. But, you know, there are some motorcycles that when they go by you, I mean, it sounds like someone's firing an RPG next to your ear, and that's just unacceptable. Uh, And RPGs are loud. Uh, And there are also cars that have a similar setup. I I don't understand the appeal of driving around everywhere and having that incredibly loud noise. Uh, I think noise is a, a form of pollution that does get me upset, much more so than any CO2 or any of the climate change alarmism out there. Uh, And the issue of of urinating on the street, uh, this is not something that you want to see uh, when you're a resident of an area. Uh, It it is really gross. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, I grew up here in the city, and it was commonplace, and people would, uh, would relieve themselves on city sidewalks all over the place. And this was, you know, you'd... You'd be walking into a building and you'd go into the vestibule and there'd be a, a person uh, who appeared to be perhaps a, a, a vagrant and would just be going. And that was normal. I mean, you'd, you'd see it and you'd be grossed out. And, oh, gosh. But 
this is just the way that it was. I know that there should be some leniency with these minor uh, issues, you know, these more minor crimes. I, I get that. But I do worry that because we've entered a phase where there's been some, such a drop in crime uh, that we are forgetting that you know, people should uh, not have to deal with even more minor crimes that are preventable, right? So just because you know, murders have dropped a lot in New York City doesn't mean we want to start allowing graffiti to happen again. Uh, the, the city that I grew up in is such a different place than what it is right now. And I have this sense that they'll be trying this in different areas. I, I forget what the other city was. Another city recently changed its ordinances so that uh, public urination would be a more minor offense. And look, I'm not saying people should spend time in prison for public urination, but uh, you know, let's not make this a free-for-all either. Uh, and I'm concerned that that's what's going to happen here in New York City. So yeah, might be a smelly summer. Um, Thank you, as always, for uh, joining me here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, we will be posting on BuckSexton.com tomorrow, as we always do, so please do uh, check that out. I've seen the initial T-shirt designs, by the way. Uh, it's very exciting stuff. I think you'll really like them when we get them up on the site. We're not yet there, but I've, we've got the designs. We have not yet placed orders for them. As soon as we do, I'll let you know, and from there you'll be able to buy them, uh, and I'll be posting them on social media, and we'll have a lot of fun with that. The Freedom Hut t-shirts are amazing. You'll love them. Um, also, uh, please do download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Uh, if I could ask you for a favor, consider it an, an, an early, early, early birthday present for me. If not this week, this month, sometime soon, tell some friend of yours about the show. Uh, share the free podcast. Tell them to download it and check it out. Uh, I really hope that uh, you can do that and help me spread the help me pass the buck um as always i hope you have an excellent day evening or whatever part of the day you're listening to the show until tomorrow my friends as always shields high